All right. Thank you all for being here this evening. Thankfully, there's a little less snow outside than there was last Wednesday. Um, we are in the book of Esther tonight. So for those of you who are uh, new, what we tend to do is kind of go back through the book that we did the previous Sunday and highlight maybe that we didn't highlight. And also I have some questions along the way, good discussion questions, or at least I'm calling them good discussion questions. You can decide if they're good or not. Um, and then we you know, kind of open it up and let people answer. And as I've said, if a lot of times we have really good discussion. And if, if not, then I just kind of go, you'll just hear the sermon a second time. Um, so we, we talked, we're in Esther, which is just an incredible story. Um, I'm curious, somebody came up to me and told me about a, a movie that I'd forgotten. It's called One Night with the King, which is a story of Esther. Anybody? Is that, I, I haven't seen it. Is that a, is that a good one? Yeah. Worth watching? All right. Somebody told me they were going home that very afternoon to go watch it. And so, okay, I'll have to keep that in mind. But I was going to ask the question, you know, Esther, in my mind, is just kind of one of those classic stories, just really good, stand on its own. Um, what, other, what are other examples of stories in the Bible that just, obviously, we like all of them and they're all good and none of them are bad. But are there certain ones that really, kind of, in your mind, kind of rise to the surface of just like, that's one of my favorite stories. Yes, ma'am. Joseph. Story of Joseph. Yeah, that's a good one. Job. Job. We got Job coming up this coming Sunday. Paul likes story of suffering. <laughs> David and Goliath. Malachi. Right on. Yeah. Samson. Yeah. Good. Hosea, is Hosea, yeah. Very good. Okay. Well, let me do this. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump into Esther. Uh, Father, we thank you for folks who are here tonight. We lift up this time to you that it will honor you as we open your word, uh, read your word, uh, discuss and learn from each other how to best apply this for your glory. We lift up all the other activities going on this evening as well and just pray for your blessing uh, on, on all this going on. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're, we're starting with the silent, what I'm calling the silent sovereignty of God. And I'm pretty sure I got that from somewhere. I don't think I made that up. The silent sovereignty of God. Just the idea that we can, you can see the hand of God working in the story of Esther, though it's not explicit. It, God is not mentioned, for example. There's not, there's not miracles, per se. If, if we're defining miracle as you know, God coming and intervening and suspending the laws of nature for His purposes, which He does at times. But in the book of Esther, it's, He's kind of working through situations and events, and yet He's still sovereign, and we see His sovereignty. And so let me just once again, kind of go chapter by chapter, make a few comments. We'll read a few texts as we go, just to really try to bring the picture of the story to light. So chapter 1, the king you know, has this feast, uh, party, and in the midst, of, through this certain set of events, he gets rid of the queen, Queen Vashti, 
who basically says to him, no, I'm not going to come parade in front of a, a group of people uh, for your purpose, for your glory. And he gets rid of her. And, you know, as you're reading it, you just go, well, it's kind of weird what's going on. But God is working. In chapter 2, uh, the king chooses Esther to be the, the new queen. And, you know, he, he could have chosen any number of women, pretty much anyone. And he chooses her. And we know that God's, God's doing this. God's orchestrating this. God's in control. And I was reminded, you know, there's a, there's a passage in Isaiah that references Cyrus the king. Cyrus is a Persian king, but Isaiah is written something like 200 years before Cyrus is born. And Isaiah is prophesying about a person named Cyrus who's going to be a king, who's going to allow God's people to return. And you just see the sovereignty of God, the hand of God. He, he's telling us hundreds of years before that there's going to be a person named Cyrus who's going to play a significant role in allowing God's people to return back. Once again, God works through pagan kings. And that's been a, a significant theme in uh, Ezra, Esther, Esther, and Nehemiah. Um, chapter 2, we have this great part of the story. Look at chapter 2, verses 21 to 23. In those days, as Mordecai, that's Esther's cousin, as he was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So this event happens. As you're reading the story, you just say, you know, if you're reading it for the first time, you say, Okay, interesting, but I don't really see the significance. But then you keep reading the story, and we know it's going to be very significant. And we'll get to that. But I just I like to point out that Mordecai just happened to be sitting at the king's gate and happened to overhear these two guys talking and happened to be involved in sparing the king's life. And that's going to play a significant role in the storyline. In chapter 3, the villain of the story, Haman... I was, I was curious if anybody was going to hear. The villain of the story, Haman gets... I wonder, should I do, mention it this coming Sunday and just see if anybody... Remember, see what happens. Bruce says, please don't. <laughs> uh, I, I will say I made a strategic decision to mention that halfway through the sermon and not at the beginning. Because <laughs> I knew I could only handle it for... A couple of references. Uh, it started that started out at the beginning and got moved to the middle. Um, good decision. Good decision. Uh, so the villain of the story gets promoted to this really high position, number two in the land, and you know to such an extent that he wants people to bow down to him. And of course, Mordecai won't. Let, let's let's read it. Chapter three, verses two through six. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? 
And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So notice it says, he told him he was a Jew. That's the only explanation that's given. Now we know, read between the lines, what that really means is, he believes there's only one true and living God. You don't bow down to other people. So it's his, it's his conviction and faith in God that calls him to say, I'm not going to bow down to you. And we've seen that in other stories in the Bible, right? We'll see that as we keep going. The book of Daniel, for example. Uh, so I, I just think it's interesting. It's a subtle, it's a su- it doesn't really come out and explicitly, it just tells us he was a Jew and that's why he wouldn't do it. And it leads us to say, well, what does being Jewish have to do with not bowing down to Haman? And, and of course, we know the answer to that. But this makes him angry, not just at Mordecai, but at all of Mordecai's people. Because he, in his mind, he makes a connection. If you won't bow down because of your religion, what about the other people who share your religion? And he basically says, I, I want to have them all killed. And as the number two in that time, he can potentially do that. He's kind of got the authority to do that. And so he's going to do it. His plan is all the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes or Ahasuerus, you know, and we might say, well, that's just, that's just Persia, right? And the answer is no, Persia's the new power. I mean, you know, it's going to be Rome next, and it's been, it's been Babylon, and it's been Assyria, but now it's Persia, and it's not just the country or this particular, it's everywhere they've, their kingdom has expanded, and their kingdom has expanded to Jerusalem. So it's all the Jews in Jerusalem, too, right? This is not just a threat for the Jews in Persia. This is a threat to all Jews anywhere in this region. And so it's, it's truly an existential threat. All of God's people, all of the Jewish people. Um, which, by the way, is a major storyline, not just in the Bible, but of human history, right? It's not that long ago where you got Hitler trying to extinguish all of the Jewish people. So it's a, it's a, it's a storyline that goes back a long ways. And it, to some extent, it's still, it hasn't ended. Um, Chapter 4, gets word to Esther that Haman is planning to kill all the Jewish people, and therefore she needs to do something. You know, you're the queen, you have access to the king, you need to do something, you need to say something. So let's read, this is a, cl- a cl- classic text, Esther 4, verses 8 through 17, and then after I read it, I'm going to ask this question, what are some lessons, truths, principles we can glean from this from today. Okay. Esther chapter 4, verses 8 to 17. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. 
except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So a great passage, all kinds of good stuff in there. And I'll open it up to you to point out all the good stuff. What do you think? What are some lessons, truths, principles, observations we can make of this? Yes, ma'am. Well, Mordecai makes it pretty obvious to Esther, you know, if she's not going to be the one to deliver the people, God's going to use somebody else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great observation. Mordecai, he's not saying, if you don't do this, we're dead, because he believes he takes God at his word, and God's going to be faithful to his people. So if Esther's not faithful, if she gets scared and doesn't do it, he says, God's going to raise up someone else to do it. And he actually says, and you and your household die. And by the way, go down. We would never have heard of Esther if she had not done this. And there would be somebody else. It would be the book of someone else. Um, so God's going to God's going to be faithful to his people. He's going to deliver his people. The question is, is Esther going to be the one who's going to be faithful to do it? Is God going to use Esther in her faithfulness to accomplish this? If not, God will find someone else to do it. So that's a good observation. And a lot of application there for us today, right? Like, God's going to accomplish. He doesn't need us. He'll use us to accomplish his purposes, missions, evangelism, Seeing people, he wants to use us, he will use us if we're faithful. If we're not, and we go off the rails, it's not like, oh, God's going, oh, no. What am I going to do now? <laughs> you know, they abandoned me. He's like, he'll just raise up somebody else and use somebody else. Here we are back at 339. Yeah. <laughs> Significance so of 339. Yeah, that's true. Right on. Right on. Good observation. Three days, three nights to fast. And I, I assume pray. It's not just about don't eat food. It's like don't eat food and spend the time praying. So there's a good principle there, right? What's the, what's the principle? Esther's going to do it. She's going to be faithful. But she also asked them to fast for three days. What's maybe a principle we could draw out from Focus. that? Focus. All right. Don't rely on self. Yes. Right. Yeah, a recognition that if this is going to happen, it's got to be God who does it. We need to rely on him. So it's not just good plan, let's do it. It's like good plan, let's do it. But let's also make sure we're doing God's strength, God's wisdom. We recognize if he's not behind this, then it's not going to be for good. Fasting is a big deal. So it's it's important. Mm -hmm. It's not a simple question to decide. It's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, involving 
other people. Yeah. I think it's all, I mean, I just think it's really interesting, this principle of like, God's going to do what he's going to do, and he's going to work through his people, and they're going to, she's going to be faithful, but there's still, God uses prayer, the prayer of his people to accomplish his purposes. So it's a good reminder to us, we do what we're supposed to do, we trust God's going to be faithful, and we pray. We don't say, well, he's going to do what he's going to do, so we don't have to pray. No, prayer is a part of the process, God-ordained process to accomplish his purposes. He uses prayer, and we get to be a part of that. And I think that's a good principle here. It's like, it was the right thing to do. They knew it. They're going to do it. But they also recognize that fasting is a part of how God works to accomplish his plans. Any other thoughts, principles? Yes, sir. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What other principles can we from uh, these verses? Well, Le- the obvious is she was willing to go to her death for her faith. Yeah. You know, she didn't let, wasn't letting being queen and, and all of that stop her from being true to what she believed. Yes. Good. So, I mean, she had a lot to lose. Yeah. Did y'all hear that in the back? Um, it was good. It was, this this point was willing to die for her faith. Um, she demonstrated faithfulness. I I, th- I do think it's good to point out there there was a moment where it's like, but I could die, and she wrestled with that. And that's it's not just stoic like, yeah, I'll do it. If I die, I die. There was a there was a process of coming to a point where she said, okay. And I think sometimes God may call us to do things, and at first it's, I don't know about that, or that feels really awkward, or uh, that's embarrassing, or I'm not sure I want, and there's a wrestling, and, and that's okay. The wrestling's a real part of it. Uh, but at the end of the day, she said, if this is what I'm supposed to do, then I'll do it, and if I die, I die. And she, I did, there's something we can learn there, to not value life, our, my life, more than faithfulness to God. Um, Because, yeah, I mean, I think we have, don't we have a tendency to value my life more than else? Like, I'll do it, but if it means potentially dying, I'm not so sure. She said, well, if this is what I'm supposed to do, then this is what I'm supposed to do, regardless of what happens. So a great example of faith, faithfulness. Two people in the place of influence, Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai's devotion to God comes through with his absolute confidence, God will deliver us. Mm-hmm. Whether you allow him to use you or someone else. Mm. But it was but his but his absolute conviction I think had a had a good influence on Esther and then uh, of course her influence on the king. Yeah. But and, and it helped her Mordecai I think helped her recognize the silent sovereignty of God. Mm-hmm. You didn't. You didn't rise to this position just by chance. Right. Right. Out of all the beautiful women he could have picked, it, perhaps you came to this. That he picked you. Yeah. Such a time as this. It's God's time. Yeah. As you were talking, there were several thoughts that were coming up in my head that I think are related to what you were saying. 
this idea that they are at different positions. She's the queen who has the king's ear. He's the perhaps the confidence, the older wisdom, and he's encouraging her. You can do it. God's got you there. And he plays a significant role. She plays a significant role. And then you got the role of the community, fasting and praying. And so a good reminder that God, it's, it's, it's not just a lone ranger, even though it's the book of Esther and the story of Esther. God uses people, community, and, and, and we all have a, and we all have a different role. Like it wasn't, it wasn't Mordecai's job to go to the king. It was Esther's. And so it's a good reminder. Faithfulness looks slightly different from person to person. The situation God has you in, the place God has you, the opportunity you have, and the importance of us encouraging each other to be faithful in those roles. Because we need people speaking in, encouraging us. God's got a plan. Be faithful where you are. Like you said earlier about evangelism, it's amazing that God allows us to be used. He doesn't need us. Uh, but like the elect are going to be saved. Mm-hmm. Whether we choose to allow him to use us in that process, mm-hmm. they're going to be, the elect are going to be saved. Right. It's, it's wonderful that he allows his people the opportunity to participate in his kingdom work. Right. Yeah, by absolutely. By sharing the gospel. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. or some great strong person she won a beauty contest and she went to the spa mm-hmm. and she was she was put there by God right and and then she rises to that occasion right it doesn't mean she came from a great family that's right we don't really have any indication in the text there was necessarily faithfulness on her part leading up right. to chapter right. four right. Um, she just kind of followed what she did and they told her they gave her certain beauty tips and she followed them and and apparently didn't reveal her Jewishness. And that probably also means she was eating what everybody else was eating, because if she had abstained, then they would have noticed, and they would have known she was Jewish. I don't even think the king knows she, you know, that she's Jewish. So unlike Daniel, and you know, they're, they're not following the dietary laws. Um, so I, I'm with you. It's, it's, it definitely doesn't paint this picture of just a godly background which which has an encouraging element to it like god calls her at this time and uses her and she's faithful in the midst of it because we could do that right that's the point right and who knows where another esther is you know i i I can be looking out for other esther so to speak around that god wants to use yes reminds me of all things work together for good right like you said uses the whole community to work his plan right yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's good. It, I think that it shows, you know, Malachi raised her, and, you know, if she was not really committed to the Lord before this, you know, it's, it's another, it leads to our free will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very good. Any other thoughts on any lessons we learn from this passage? Okay, well, we'll proceed to chapter 5. In chapter 5, we have Haman, 
building this large wooden beam, the structure, to hang Mordecai 50 cubits high. I mentioned on Sunday, I think I mentioned this. I, don't, I never know if I've mentioned it in both services or not. <laughs> and so uh, sometimes I have to ask, did I say this in the service? Uh, uh, I read somewhere 75 feet would be the equivalent of two school buses stacked on top of each other. So, you know, you think about prior to the kind of electronics we have constructing, like what motivates a person to construct a 75 foot tall hanging gallows to hang, to hang someone. It just gives of the, the hatred and the desire to do this in a public way, a public spectacle. And so you got the hanging gallows, number two man in the country is going to hang Mordecai on him. He's ready to go plans in place. He knows the very day it's going to happen, but God's in control. Chapter 6, verse 1, the king could not sleep. I'm kind of sympathetic to this because I have a hard time sleeping sometimes. And my wife just bought melatonin for me. <laughs> Does anybody take melatonin? Does it, is that a thing to do? Okay. So, okay. <laughs> I wasn't planning on asking about melatonin, but while, <laughs> while we're here, let's be practical. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah, so maybe. But it did, but it does. I mean, I do think it's this is a legitimate question. What, what you know, what do you do in the middle of the night and can't go back to sleep, right? Read the Bible. Yeah, it's good. Sometimes it takes hours. <laughs> yeah. Go get a snack. <laughs> Very spiritual. <laughs> Drink coffee. Yeah, I guess for me, it's kind of depends on what time it is. It's like, it's, it ma- is it one o'clock or is it three o'clock or is it five o'clock? It's going to factor into what I might do. So anyway, well, I'll let you know how the melatonin works. <laughs> um, the king can't sleep, and he decides he's going to go back and review his records. And when he does, he's reminded of this situation that happened that we've already talked about where Mordecai saved his life. And he says, did we ever do anything to honor that guy? And they said, no. And he says, we need to do something. And let's come up with a plan. Is there any of my you know, number two, number three, number four, number five guys around? Well, Haman happens to be here. So he comes in and they develop a plan. He says, what should I do to honor someone? I want to honor someone. What do you think I ought to do? And Haman, oh, well, I got an idea. Of course, Haman thinks it's about himself. So he comes up with this plan, basically a hero's parade. And then, of course, look at chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. We read it this past Sunday, but it's good enough to read it again. Then the king said, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew. And he doesn't just call him Mordecai. Mordecai the Jew. (laughs) Who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Do it all. Great plan. And you got to think in his mind, he's just like, oh, no. Uh, So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So basically, he becomes the servant, you know, the number two man in the nation who was trying to wanting to kill Mordecai is now having to parade him through town, giving him honor. And it's a, it's a great reversal. Chapter 7, after Mordecai has just been exalted, you know, and honored, 
king finds out, because Esther tells him that Mordecai is a Jew, and Haman's plan involved killing him and all the Jews, and we get the sense that this is where she reveals, oh, and I'm a Jew too. And the king has just issued this edict through his number two man that all the Jews are to be killed. So it makes him angry. He leaves. He comes back in the room, and in chapter 7, verse 8, it says that Haman was falling on the couch. And it's kind of, it's a uh, it's a way of saying, I think it's a way of saying, like, you know, begging for mercy, like falling at her feet, clinging to her, like, please don't kill me, to Esther. And the king sees Haman latching on to Esther and thinks that, the, that Haman is attacking her. It says, you're going to attack her too? It's just the way he sees it when he comes in. He's angry. You know, when you're angry at somebody, you... You interpret everything as, that they do as terrible. So he interprets that as, and he says, you're going to attack her. And it, it, in the story, it's interesting. He doesn't say, kill him. They just take him. Like the king's men just come over, grab him. They don't need any more. They don't need anything else. They just take him and they go hang him. And of course, they hang him on the very gallows that he had built to have Mordecai killed on. So once again, there's poetic justice. The Hindus call it karma. Karma, that's true. <laughs> interesting how God will raise up some of these insignificant characters Mm -hmm. like in verse uh, 9 then Harbana one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said moreover the gallows that Haman was prepared for Mordecai whose word saved the king Mm -hmm. he he didn't there was no lost love for Haman yeah yeah they were just chomping at the bits to seem to get what he <laughs> and and also interesting how just the tide the tide the turning and how and and that doesn't just happen kind of by chance it's like there's this series of events and even that in the details it all just have the timing of it like if the king hadn't said let's honor Mordecai if it hadn't happened right on the heels of that who knows if the king would have said yeah. Okay. Fine. Well, well, I mean, he, he already he already allowed the edict to be issued that all the Jews be killed. So it's not like he's super sympathetic to the Jewish people, but it's just this this particular timing that you just honored a man named Mordecai because of his faithfulness, and and now I'm realizing that my wife is Jewish, and it is it's kind of all comes together. Why did he go get the court records at, in the middle of the night? Or taking melatonin. <laughs> and the king didn't turn and, tell, and be upset because they lied to him. They were Jews, you know. Right. You guys didn't tell me that. He didn't go that way. Right, and right. That, that's in every movie there is, right? Ah. You lied to me, you know. But he, didn't, he doesn't go there. Yeah. And that interests me in this because he had just signed that edict for the Jews. Now he finds out these people that are on his side he likes them. Yeah. They are Jews. Well, you didn't tell me that. Yeah. Right? And along those same lines, you know, you've also got kind of in a, it's very peculiar. And once again, we don't have the backstory, so we don't know. But Esther, I can have anything. Okay, let's have a banquet. All right, now we're at the banquet. What did you want? Uh, let's have another banquet. It's like the timing of it. Why did she request Banquets. Why did she withhold this information to this time? Well, obviously, God's sovereign. 
but there's a there's just a timing that she somehow was sensitive to as well. That's true. So yeah, I mean, we get the sense that he's at a banquet, he's drunk. It says they were drinking wine when he left, it came out. So, and then you got God working through that. Yeah, good point. She knows the inner workings and how those parties are. She knows what's going to happen. And she also she knew enough to know it's not a good idea to go to him when he's in the chamber and I haven't been summoned. Like she had a, a, an instinct about that and yet uh, overcame it. But yeah, you're right. There's a. Obviously, cultural things that are hard for us to get. Did he have, There's going to be a bar fight. <laughs> <laughs> Did he have animosity against the Jews, the king, already? Or was it just, you know, she was picked one of the groups of people that were hundreds of different groups in his empire. Right. And so it's just you and the horse you rode in on. And so him signing that thing with Haman was probably like, yeah, there's no real hatred towards Jewish people. It's just him and his life. Yeah. Which would have been any other kind of people. Or is there an indication where he is an anti-Semite, you know, God's people? I don't think there's a huge indication of it. Uh, but, I mean, I do think, to your point earlier, themsical and whatever he does, you know, and, and then he allows the number two man. I mean, who knows what's behind the scenes? Is he just signing off on an edict? Number two man says it. I'll do it. I trust him. Okay. And doesn't really think through implications. Um uh, of course, we don't know for sure, but I, I I think we get the sense that he I mean he's not he's obviously not a hero in the story, and he's kind of a uh, uh, goofball, but um, but uses that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's another example of the use of influence in a negative way. Haman had a negative influence on the king. King King was whimsical. Right. Okay, bring me some more goblet of water. Right, right, right. You know, uh, but yeah. it all backfired. Timing's everything, and God's timing mm-hmm. especially. Yeah. Okay, good stuff. Um, so chapter 8, the king issues a new edict and says, don't, you know, basically don't listen to the first one. The Jews are not to be killed. In fact, if... If you try to kill them, they can defend themselves and kill you, and they, they end up killing a lot of people. Uh, chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth, the same when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. And so I just, I love that phrase, the reverse occurred. And interesting, it's all on the same day. I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine all of these events can happen on one day. But I go with God's word. The reverse occurred. So on the day he was planning to have Mordecai and all the Jews killed, it's the very day it gets reversed on him. And look at the language of reversal in chapter 9, verse 22. As the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. That's, I like that, the holiday. That's what our friends over in Ireland actually all do. Uh, what do you, vacation is a holiday. We're going, we're going on a holiday. Is that a 
European thing or a yeah, yeah. British thing? Yeah. Going on holiday. Um, so turned it from sorrow to gladness, mourning to holiday. And then one other verse that highlights this reversal, the idea of reversal. Verse 25. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. So that phrase, returned on his own head, it's, a, it's this idea of reversal. And of course, they end up celebrating it called Purim. And, and verse, verse 24 tells us kind of the history of this word. Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. By the way, Agagite points back to the people that uh, Saul was supposed to kill thoroughly and didn't. And so this is, this is the, the result of Saul not doing what he was supposed to do. That's another little side story there uh, and another relationship. But, um, and, I, and I think if memory serves me correct, uh, that Mordecai is a descendant of Saul. Anyway, um, so this, so per means to cast the lot. Haman rolled the die, cast the lot. It fell on this day, the 13th day of this month. He said, this is the day when I'm going to kill them. God reversed it, and it became the day when, when God's people got deliverance. And to this day, they continue to celebrate, recognize this. This year, it falls on March 6th. Um, I think it's, it's mainly just a one-day holiday now, lately. Um, but I mentioned in the I mentioned on Sunday that we tend to like stories that have kind of the powerful, the big, the miraculous. We we, we gravitate toward that. We like that. Why is it important for us to appreciate a story like Esther, where it's God's silent sovereignty, the big, powerful, miraculous? Why is it important to appreciate this story? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. This is, this is the way that God tends to work today. You know, I, I heard one stat that said if you took the number of years that the Bible covers, twenty five hundred plus. And you take the number of miracles that are mentioned. If you take, it, it ends up being like one miracle for every 40 years. And that's in the Bible. And we know sometimes the periods of miracles are like really concentrated. The Exodus, uh, some early apostles. Uh, so, you know, most of the time, there's not the, the thunder and the fire and the wow. Most of the time, that's not, you know, those, are, those are stories that are in there because they are wow. Normally, it's the silent sovereignty, and, and I, I agree with you. I think the way that God normally works today is similar. It's the silent sovereignty. It's the twists and turns that at the time we may not see and go, oh, there's God's sovereignty. We can look back and see it. So I, I, I think about that sometimes with our country right now. You know, I mean, you, you stop on the news and you go, oh. Yeah. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. He's, he's always at work, and his purpose, he's working out his purpose every day. Mm-hmm. Even if I don't like the headlines. Mm-hmm. Once in a while, he'll throw me a crumb, and I'll say, oh, Lord, <laughs> thank you. Something, yeah. Something good. That's a good point that every day, like God is always working out, is, is always sovereign. And so that's a good reminder that I should have my eyes open for how and in what way and what role do I play in that. That's a good, that's, I think that's a good application here. How is God calling me to be like Mordecai in this situation, like Esther in this situation? Right. He never takes a day off. Right. Right. My faithfulness shouldn't be contingent on the wows, right. the, the the mountaintop, so to speak. My faith's contingent on he's he's God, he's in control, he's doing it. I may not totally get it, but I can trust that. That's good. Any other thoughts on that? Yes, yes, sir. Yeah, you know, there's kind of two, two or three that you know this question of do miracles happen today? Should we expect them? Do the really the big debate comes down to the gifts? Do the gifts, the the miraculous gifts, healing, tongues, prophecy? Do these gifts continue? And you have some some like MacArthur, John MacArthur is in the camp of the gifts have ceased. They ceased with the apostolic age. And they would argue things like, even in the book of Acts, you've got, you've got miracles, and then by the end, you've got l- less miracles, maybe none. You know, you've got shipwrecks and dying and snake bit and all this kind of stuff, and you don't have Paul healing. There's not healing happening like you see at the beginning. So you've got that. And then you've got, that's, one, that's kind of one side of the spectrum. On the other side of the spectrum, you've got folks who basically say, and these tend to be the more charismatic um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not only, but uh, it'll, hit, it'll hit me here in a second. Um, that say, oh, that, I mean, just like it happened in Acts, this is what we ought to be looking for and expecting today. And if we don't, then we're not being faithful. Like, this is what they did. They expected miraculous uh, prophecy, healing. So if we're going to be faithful, we need to be. we need to look like the book of Acts as it relates to the miracles and all of that. It's kind of another side of the spectrum. And then, you know, you have some kind of, I would, kind of, I would maybe call myself, in terms of the, the gifting, I, I think the gifting has ceased. In terms of can God still perform miracles today, I believe he certainly can. Does he? Uh, I, I, I'm open. I would call myself open but cautious. So if somebody came to me and said, uh, you know, we went on a mission trip and there were all these happening. I wouldn't say, no, you didn't. I don't, my theology tells me that's not possible. I wouldn't say that. I also wouldn't say, I'm going to get up on Sunday morning and preach about how God just did this. Like, I want, I want some verification. I want to ask some questions. 
I want to explore this a little bit. Um, so that's kind of where I fall. I lean more toward the the cessationist side on that spectrum, but but I'm also not at a point where I would say there are no does not perform miracles. And I don't even think that a lot of cessationists would necessarily say God does not perform miracles, but it can get interpreted that way. So I want to be clear that if if my when my son was uh, terminally ill, I was praying for whatever it took, a miracle, antibiotic, medicine, doctor, I don't care, you know, whatever it takes, Lord, heal him. And uh, so um, that's the way I, that's the way I pray. Right. You know, versus the natural reproduction, for instance, you know, a lot of people get upset and say child versus miracle. It's not. It's how God tended for humans to reproduce. Now, if he hangs somebody out in the middle and there's no gravity, we defy the law of gravity. Now we're talking about something different. Right. So I think a lot of it, we attribute so many things to miracles that we really struggle to recognize what really is and really isn't. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. We have to be clear on what we mean by miracle. And, and by saying we don't think it's a miracle, we're not saying God is less involved or, less, or that it's less, he's less sovereign. We're just saying strictly defined, a miracle is a suspension of the natural laws. Has God done that? Absolutely. Can he do it? Absolutely. Will he do it? Will. Uh, does he do it frequently, regularly? I'm, I don't think so. I mean, I don't, I mean not, not that... Not that we are seeing and experiencing, because God set nature up. It's, it's about God. It's about, this is how he designed it. It's his design. This is his good design. So things normally work and operate according to the natural laws. Not because we're pro-science and anti-God, but because we believe and created a world with cause and effect. And, and, um, and so we look at those things and say, this is the hand of God that I drop a pen and it falls to the floor. Like that's, that, in a weird way, brings glory to God because he designed the world to work like that. That's not science. That's God-ordered world that science can't help us understand. And, um, now, if I drop the pen and it hung in the air, now we're talking about a miracle. <laughs> but if somebody tells me that, hey, oh, that's, that's really neat. I'm, I'm gonna, I'd like to see that. <laughs> Right. Right. You don't see you don't see Paul writing to the church or, or any of the apostles writing to churches saying you guys need to be doing more miracles. You're not doing enough miracles. And you would think if that was an expectation of a New Testament church to be going around and performing miracles, you'd think somewhere in the New Testament letters there'd be an admonition: you guys aren't doing enough healings. It's all about doctrine when he writes to Timothy. Yeah. 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 So, yes, sir. I think we're living in a time where people coming to know Christ is a miracle. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. So you're saying that the spiritual rebirth is miraculous. Amen. Right. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Yes, ma'am.
Right. And it's, it's like, oh, he dropped a, a cherry on top of the Sunday one. You know? <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, um, sign gifts have basically ceased. Yeah. Well, we have All right. a complete revelation of God. Right. And they use the, the miracles God used them in the early establishment of the church. Right. And then, like you say, it kind of. Yeah. Any other simple questions? I'm just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right, I'm going to press on. Uh, good stuff, though. Okay, number two, the sovereign king humbles the exalted. So part of God's silent sovereignty is he humbles those who exalt themselves. Of course, Haman is example number one. So look at this. Look at this passage, chapter 5, verses 11 and 13. Um, he puts himself forward. Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther... Let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. <laughs> He's even bragging about the fact that he got invited to the feast by Esther. Little does he know what behind her motive for inviting him to the feast. Um, Tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king, yet all this is worth nothing to me as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. So he says, all, this, all these promotions, check me out, and yet it means nothing because there's one person at least who's not bowing down to me. So that you just see his pride just exuding over. And I, I referenced uh, Psalm 2, that the Lord sits in heaven and laughs. And so I think there's a time and place for us to consider how, how God thinks about arrogant people and therefore how we should think about arrogant people. Um, and I think, as I mentioned on Sunday, we tend to promote arrogance in our culture. We tend to lift up people who tend to be pretty full of themselves. And we want to emulate them and be like them and dress like them and act like them. Uh, especially, of course, you know, kids and younger, younger generation. And, and, and we were all a part of a younger generation at one time, up to these folks who were, who were doing this. But um, do, do, you think it's an ac- do you think it's accurate to say deep down a lot of people kind of crave or, or wish that they were famous with all of the glory and the fame and the success and the money? Is it, is it accurate to say that people generally... Deep down, say, boy, if I could have that, if I could be like that, I'd be happy. Life would be good. That's an accurate. Yes. I think so because in this period, people are so self-centered that it's all about me and they want their fame and their glory and their money and their money. Yeah. So you think you see that? Yeah. Any other thoughts on that? Huh. <laughs> you don't name? That's what yeah. they say. I gotcha. I gotcha. Was cre- creating a lot of, or contributing to a lot of mental illness on social media. Hmm. With the, with, with this, I don't know, I guess with every, t- especially teens. No, you're right. How many likes did I get 
Oh, I got to see. I got to keep checking this all yeah. day long, every day. How many likes? How many likes? Yeah. Oh, no one likes me. Oh. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's proven. There's a relationship with how a person thinks about themselves and how many likes they get, and that causes depression. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, just our present, just the social media experience, I think, proves this point of this desire to be liked, known, uh, held in a high esteem. Yes, sir. Yeah. So it's funny you say that. I used to work at a camp in the summers, and they had a uh, an award they would give out called the I'm Third Award. And so God first, other second, I'm third. And whoever was the most I'm third won the award. And so we're all trying to, like, hold the door for each other so we could win the award, you know. I was the most humble. I was the most third. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I give up on that day one. <laughs> All right. Um, why do you think it talking about famous people? I'm kind of making a little bit of a correlation between famous and arrogant. And I know that's not a, there's a it's, a it's not always the case, but often the case. Um, I, I made the argument that it often doesn't turn out well for famous people. Right. It just there it it seems to be a pattern of it just doesn't seem. Why, why do you think that is? Why do you think that's a common pattern? Never enough. So kind of like Mordecai, like, or not Mordecai, Haman's like, I have everything I want, but one guy not bowing down to me. So I'm not happy. I would say it a little differently. I would say that it's not necessarily more common. It's just more seen. Mm. Because I think we all, it's appointment in that kind of thing where we don't always do what we want or, or whatever, or we not as big a deal as we think we are. But because they're in the spotlight, everybody sees it. Mm -hmm. They don't see you. Right. And they don't care about me or y'all. So you're saying it just gets highlighted because they tend to be in the spotlight. And when they fall, they fall farther. Right. Because they're a big deal. Yeah. So and we hear about it. like to see them. Yeah. Too, by the way. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Our life is boring. Theirs is, wow. Yeah. I can't believe he acted like that to his wife or mother. I mean, we yeah. like thrill on it. Interested it's, in it. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir. The more popular you get, the more entitled you feel. Mm. Uh, and that leads to further sin. Mm -hmm. And that leads to doing things that if I didn't have all that money and riches and everything, I wouldn't do that. We've seen that time again with the downfall of a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So now I'm going to transition a little bit because we've talked about the pride and the arrogance of others. And now I'm going to kind of turn the attention here. Why is pride such a difficult sin to address in ourselves? Why are we so quick to see it in others, hate it in others, and so slow to recognize it in ourselves? Oh, I'm not as bad as you. <laughs> Harrison? Yeah, yeah. That's true. Any other thoughts on that? Why is... Right. Yes, sir. Yeah. Even even humble people, if it's about them, are all of a sudden, it's about them. Yeah. Yeah, 
That's well, true. It's not pride in you, it's confidence. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, it's just a, it's a, a good characteristic. Yeah. Yeah, the question is where's the line between confidence, being assured, and yet pride? Because, I mean, you know, when you let's look at Mordecai, I'm not going to bow down. You know, you could have somebody saying to him, just do it. Like, uh, just bow down. You know, but he, he stoned, so to speak. And one person might look at that and say, that's self confidence. Um, so I, I think for me, I would make a distinction. And I was going to get to this later, but might as well get to it now. Um, humility is more about having a right view of yourself and a right view of God and who you are before him. It's not about having a low view of yourself per se. And, and one, one anecdote to that is a lot of people have low selves, and they fixate on it. And they experience depression and all kinds of other problems. And they seem like woe is me kind of people. They seem like people who have such a low view of themselves. They seem like the opposite of prideful people, but their attention and focus is so much on themselves. It's the same problem as the problem of pride. It's just a focus on me. Yeah, it's like you may have a low view of yourself, but if that's all you're ever thinking about is how low yourself, you're thinking of yourself too much. And so it's kind of ironic that a person can think of themselves too much and have too low of a view, in a sense, and a person can think of themselves and have too high of a view. And interestingly, we come back to this a lot, but the gospel causes us to have both at the same time. A low view, a sinner, look what Jesus had to do to save your sin, and yet Jesus did it. You're loved. So a, so a Christian perspective, there's always a, a sense of, I'm a sinner and I don't deserve this, but there's also a sense of, but... <laughs> But I've been forgiven, I am in Christ, and I have everything I need. So I never get too low because, wow, I'm rich in Christ. But I also never get too high because remember what Christ had to do for you and remember your sin. So the Christian view would, would have both. There's a low aspect and a high aspect, but it's both. Unhealthy goes too far over here or too far over here, and both of them, it's too much of a view on me. And I'll say, I'll say one quick phrase, and then I'll, Jay, uh, Jay to speak. Um, I heard, here's one way to say it. Humility is not, having a, it's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So I'm not thinking less of me, like Chris is way down here. I just think of myself less. I think of God more. I think of others more. Right. And that's a, a more humble Christian view of humility than kind of the... Uh, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Super sti- superficial. Superficial view. Yeah. It's not weakness. Per- there's a lot of talk about identity politics. Everything's about identity now. Our identity's in Christ. And the more we, we embrace that, it's like that uh, John 13, when, when Jesus, he wrote, uh, he, knowing that the Father had given all things in his hand, that he had come from God, he was going back to God, he got up from supper, laid aside his garments. He, he humbled himself because he knew who he, who he was in his relation with the Father. Mm-hmm. As we discover who we are in Christ, it, it, it helps get, eliminate uh, pretension. I could just be who I am. And, and uh, yeah. not, not that I'm better than anybody, 
But, but not that I'm interested in anybody. We're, we're all equal in Christ. Right, right on. Good point. Jay, did you have a thought? Oh, okay. That was very wise, Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> I just... smart thing I don't know. Uh, he just said that they were going to, I think, reference the quote of humility is less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It may be a C.S. Lewis quote. I don't recall. I'm not sure. Okay. Yep. Essentially, what Christ did for us on the cross, we are now to go out and do that for those around us. And, and that means forgiveness, that means repentance, that means uh, acceptance of that person regardless. And, and when we're offended, that's basically holding a grudge. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's opposite, that's a personal thing. That now is, is eating us up. Right. Okay. So to forgive somebody and understand that Christ did the very same thing, that's an expression of our love in Christ. Right on. Very good. Well said. All right. This final point is this great reversal. Humbles exalted, exalts the humble. And Esther, of course, we see her getting exalted. And she was she humbled herself. She was willing to put her life on the line to do what was right. God exalted her. Mordecai, willing to put his life on the line. God exalts him. You know, at the beginning of the story, he's targeted to be... End of the story, he's exalted to number two. Um, I'm, I'm got to skip some of this because we've already covered a lot of it. I, I think, Paul, you were getting at this. Uh, the solution to being a humble person is not just go be humble, Right? That would do nobody any good if we just left here and said, let's go be humble. Uh, I made the argument, in order to truly be humble, we have to have a right view of Jesus. Uh, how is Jesus the ultimate picture of humility? What, what is it about him that's a picture of humility that, that if I look at him would cause me to be humble? Right. And took on suffering that he never would have had to even touch or even think about touching. So, you know, he's, right on. He's, he's taking way more upon him than he would ever even have to dream about. Yeah, that's good. So, you, you included uh, two elements one, what he left behind, and then two, what he came to and took on. It's like both, both, either of those in and of themselves is like incredible. But, with, with the complete ability to, to snap his fingers and to, to leave it any second, I don't know could confront that to. Yeah. To endure the death of the cross, like knowing that you could completely leave that at any time. Right on. Yeah. And then on top of it, people mocking and humiliating and pouring on, and you kind of sit there and endure that. And when you could, with the, you know, literally stop it and have the complete authority and power to do that.
Yeah, good point. Yeah. And ask for forgiveness for the very people who are bringing this on. Yeah. Yeah, serving. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They call it, the theologians refer to the two states of Christ: the humiliation and the exaltation. And the humiliation is there's the incarnation, just just becoming just becoming enfleshed with all that comes with that. You know, that's a major step down when you go from what he's coming from. Glory to just being a person with all. Inability to sleep sometimes at night, right? Kind of come, circle back to that. Um, and then what? Uh, just the through life, just life suffering, uh, abandonment, friends, whatever. And then you got suffering at the cross, and you got death on the cross, and then you have buried. And so it's, there's a lot of steps down. Of course, there's a lot of steps up. There's raised from the grave and ascended to heaven and seated at God right, God's right hand, and then one day seen by all as the Lord. But but this is the, this is the trajectory, uh, and he humbled himself and therefore was exalted. Right on, right on. Here's my final last question. How do we, what does it look like to, like how do we practically keep this view of Jesus in front of us, in our minds, at our forefront, so that daily as these things come up, maybe somebody's saying something about me or I'm being accused or or whatever, I can, I can be humble. So it's not just leave here and be humble. What does it look like practically for me to keep Jesus, this view of Jesus, his humility and exaltation? What is it? How do I practically keep that here so that I am I am humble? I do humble myself. I do think rightly about myself uh, before God and all of that. What does that look like practically to do that? Any anybody have any key tips? Okay, that's a good one. Spending time with him is a key to keeping it front front and center. Yeah. If his word, if it's there on my lips, then I'm going to be quick to turn my attention there. Mind set. You know, renewing of the mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, keeping, keeping that in focus that without Christ, we are nothing. Mm. Uh, you know, so appreciating the fact that um, we have fallen. And um, so having our minds that even though we are fallen, Mm-hmm. Right on. It's not just a every now and again, not even a once a week. It's an everyday renewing of the mind. That's good. Yes, sir. Right.
Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, a certain contentment. I can I can do this. I can do all things because of who I am. Yeah, it's good. Any other thoughts practically? Be a peacemaker instead of stirring up chaos. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Be a peacemaker instead of stirring up chaos. Uh, so, you know, it's a good point. We're, we're not only supposed to be people who just kind of keep to ourselves and don't create chaos. We're supposed to be people who enter in and work to try to bring peace and in that way help people, minister to people. And, of course, that gets our hands dirty. And But and, but a humility says, about me. It's not about me having a perfect life and the boat never rocks. Like sometimes the boat's going to rock. Sometimes it means getting my hands dirty. And that's what Esther, I mean, we learn that from Esther. It's not, I'm just going to go in my prayer closet and be at peace. It's, I've got to, I'm out here and I've got to get involved, put my life on the line. That's what humility involved. It, it involved doing something, acting. So that's a good, a good, that's a good point. Any, yes, ma'am. That's a good point. Humility says, I'm always learning. I'm a student, Mm -hmm. and I'd never arrive, and I got more to learn here, and I got more to learn in relationships, and I could come out of a conversation and go, I probably could have handled this better, that better, and not just defend myself like. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That, that requires humility to say, I'm a person who needs to continue to grow and learn, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do things that need to be corrected at times. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Yes, sir. Yeah, good good thoughts, good thoughts. It's about being around people and hearing truth and having other people speak truth in is a, a key part. Yeah, and then, of course, if I'm putting myself in all these places where I'm not hearing truth, that's going to have a certain impact as well. Good stuff. Any other, Does anybody else have any thoughts before? Yes, sir. Feel free to disagree as long as you agree with me. Right. And this is what I stand for. 
right? Speak the truth in love. Yeah, good point. All right. Fred, want to pray for us? All right, thank you. Thank you all very much.